This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. He said your first crime is very special, and you don't talk about it, and you keep it close to you. The FBI releases interviews and a timeline of events of confessed serial killer in hopes of identifying his homicide victims. I'm Molly Halpern of the Bureau, and this is Wanted by the FBI. Investigators say took his own life in jail, committed 11 homicides across the country between 2001 and 2012. Case agent Jolene Godin says investigators have identified three victims. It's really important to us to be able to bring closure to family members that are still wondering what happened to their loved ones. He's also admitted to multiple kidnappings, bank robberies, home invasions and arsons. He told investigators he buried caches of money, tools, and weapons across the country to help him commit his crimes. Our primary concern is identifying additional homicide victims, but we're certainly also interested in identifying other crimes that he committed because it will help us put him in a particular place in the country. He told FBI agents he related the most with convicted serial killer Ted Bundy. Well, days have turned to weeks and then months into years. And now a Lexington family is marking 22 years since a teenager was last seen. In the past two decades, her family's had few details and even fewer answers to go on. It's been 22 years to be exact. It's affected me early my whole life. And never made it home that day. When you're 12, you don't really need your kids. You don't know what's going on. Remember, I'd sneak out at night and I'd go just walking through the neighborhoods. Just, I don't know what I was looking for back then. Maybe just hoping to run into her. Not much has changed since, and they don't even know if she's still alive. Regardless of what you think's happened, you can't give up hope. Justin says a detective came to the family a few years ago saying an inmate may have confessed, but they never heard anything after that. Now, they're still searching for answers. Justin says he can't find the answers himself, but what he can do is remember and honor his sister through his four-month-old daughter. She's got the same middle name as her. My sister's name, middle name was Ann, and her name's Anna J. In Lexington, Olivia Russell, WKYT. And anyone with information is asked to call 1-800-THE-LOST. That's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He didn't really have remorse. He didn't have empathy. Visit FBI.gov. Every legendary monster has to start somewhere. In today's terms, they have to have an origin story. Some of those stories might delve into the wrong parts of the origin, focus on abuse or trauma in the monster's childhood, highlighting the other monsters that were around them. Others start too late, focusing on the earliest acts they got caught for. Do you know who Ted Bundy's first victim was? Bundy was born in 1946 in Burlington, Vermont. Ironically, Vermont comes up again in my travels and research. The span of his crimes is considered to begin in 1974. I mentioned Bundy because he comes up in conversations between task force officers, attorneys, and detectives speaking to this killer, whose victims I'm trying to find. In a misguided attempt to talk to him about his heroes or favorite serial killers, he mentions the book Dark Dreams by Roy Hazelwood, and he mentions a Dean Koontz book called Intensity, and he mentions Jack the Ripper, H.H. H. Holmes, and says his favorite killers were never caught, giving a fleeting and momentary glimpse into maybe what he was researching when he went hunting and missing persons cases that the FBI found on his stupid computer. Bundy was a killer he had read about and identified with some of what he had done, and Bundy is well known enough that it's hard to pull out little-known facts and show them and give a new perspective. As recently as last year, new movies covered aspects of Theodore Robert Bundy's life. Bundy's crime span thought to be 1974 to 1978, and he's thought to have an unconfirmed number of victims, although he confessed to 30, and he operated in some of the same places this killer did. But what was really Bundy's origin story? Bundy revealed to Robert Keppel in 1987, but before his death, but after his inner monster had long been revealed, that he had three rules he tried to stick by. He said there were some murders, not one, not a dozen, 
just some, that he would never talk about because he had committed murders that were too close to home, too close to family, or whose victims were very young. One of those victims is relevant to today's topic of chronological context. That is to say, when we look at the character arc, using big air quotes, of a serial killer, most people picture Bundy killing co-eds, women in their late teens and early 20s near college campuses. But it's a lesser-known case that defies odds for me. The reason why is because it's speculated that the killer from this podcast didn't kill kids. But that's not the correct quote from the interviews. The quote should be that he said he didn't kill kids after his child was born in October of 2001. He said he knew that it was one of the ways he could be more aware he was losing control. Let's talk about Anne-Marie Burr for a few minutes. Anne-Marie Byrne was born December 14, 1952, in Del Norte County, California, into a Roman Catholic family. She was the first of four children, with two younger sisters, Julie and Mary, and one younger brother, Gregory, born to Donald and Beverly Burr. On the evening of August 30th, 1961, Burr and her three siblings went to bed around 8 p.m. at their home in the north end section of Tacoma, Washington, on North 14th Street. Earlier that night, Burr had eaten dinner at the nearby home of a friend, Burr and her sister Mary, age three, shared an upstairs bedroom, while brother Gregory, age five, and sister Julie, age seven, shared a bedroom in the basement. At some point during the evening, several members of the house reported hearing their pet cocker spaniel barking. In the early morning hours of August 31st, Burr woke her parents in their first floor bedroom, complaining that Mary was crying. At the time, Mary was healing from a broken arm, which was in a cast. Their mother Beverly recalled soothing Mary before sending both girls back to bed, though she could not determine the time that this had occurred. At approximately 5.30 a.m., Beverly realized that Anne-Marie was missing when they found Mary, who was crying again, alone in her bedroom. The front door of the home, which had been locked, was slightly ajar. A small window in the living room was open. Grass from the front lawn was found inside the house. An overturned bench was discovered against the side of the home. Upon searching the home, Law enforcement noticed a table of figurines beside the open living room window was undisturbed. Despite the appearance that someone had entered the home this way, and in the dirt underneath the window, they found a size 6 shoe print. The faint footprint was found near the overturned bench outside. Law enforcement estimated the shoe that made the print was likely a Ked sneaker. It was either a size 6 or a size 7. None of Burr's clothing or other personal items were missing from the home. It was determined that Burr had left the residence wearing only her blue nightgown and a chain necklace with an engraved medal of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, an identification tag, and a medal of St. Christopher. On the morning Burr was reported missing, 100 soldiers from Fort Lewis, as well as 50 National Guardsmen from Camp Murray, aided local police in the search for the child. By 11 p.m., over 75 square blocks surrounding the Burr residence had been searched, including wooded areas, but no sign of her was ever found. Additionally, dive teams searched Commencement Bay for signs of Burr, but found nothing. Due to the lack of concrete evidence indicating abduction had occurred, the Federal Bureau of Investigation only assisted the case on a standby basis. A report submitted in the days following Burr's disappearance came from neighbors who had heard screaming emanating from a vehicle with a California license plate the morning Burr went missing. However, when the driver of this vehicle was located, they explained that noise had merely emanated from the radio and was mistaken for screaming. On September 8, 1961, Donald and Beverly voluntarily took polygraph examinations in response to rumors they had withheld information in their daughter's disappearance. Both were found to be truthful in their responses. The following day, Burr's maternal grandmother, Mrs. Roy Leach, posted a $1,000 reward for information leading to the discovery of her granddaughter. The reward was later increased to $5,000 after allocation of additional funds. Over 1,500 persons were interviewed within the first 12 days of Burr's disappearance. On October 31, 1961, law enforcement interviewed 31-year-old Hugh Byan Morse, an ex-Marine and suspect in the 1959 murder of nine-year-old Candy Rogers in Spokane, Washington. In June of 1962, an employee at a service station in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, directly across the U.S. border from Grand Forks, North Dakota, told law enforcement he saw a girl who appeared to be Burr, accompanied by a man and woman who spoke a little too sharply to be her parents. The employee claimed the girl mentioned that she was from Tacoma. In the winter of 1964, law enforcement attempted to arrest Ralph Everett Larkey in Portland, Oregon. Larkey had been accused of kidnapping Gay Lynn Stewart and was considered a possible suspect in Burr's disappearance, but he committed suicide with a pistol before police were able to apprehend him. What does this have to do with our killer, you may be asking, and what could this possibly have to do? With this story. Remember last episode when I mentioned a creature called the Snollygaster? Here's the definition of a Snollygaster from the podcast Weird Darkness. 
The Snallygaster legend is very old and long-lived. The first sightings of this giant, fearsome bird took place in the 1730s. Later, in more modern times, there were reports of how the Snallygaster brought fear and terror to Maryland and Washington. Many people claimed to have seen this mysterious creature. But sometimes, not everything is what it appears to be, as was the case with the Snallygaster. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Was the creature real? Where was it hiding? Why had only some people seen it? The Snallygaster terrorized Maryland and Washington in the 1730s, and we begin there first. The Snallygaster is a giant bird that, according to legend, terrorized people and animals in Maryland, USA. It was no ordinary bird. This dragon-like beast that dived silently and unexpectedly down from the sky. It stole animals and children from horrified farm folk. Those who had seen the dangerous bird described it as half-reptile, half-bird, with a metallic beak lined with razor-sharp teeth, occasionally with octopus-like tentacles. Legends of enormous birds responsible for frightening people are not unusual in North America. The Snallygaster is somewhat similar to the Piazza bird. Native American legends convey how the Piazza bird appeared in America thousands of moons before the Paleface came. The legend of the Snallygaster appears to have emerged for the first time when German immigrants settled down in Maryland. They called the monstrous bird a Schneller Geist, meaning quick spirit in German. It was said that, just like a vampire, the Snallygaster sucked the blood of its victims. The Snallygaster was afraid of the heptagram, a seven-pointed star, and people started to paint the symbol on their barns. As many other mythological creatures, the Snallygaster had an enemy known as Dueo, and these two had many vicious encounters. The Snallygaster would most likely have remained in the realm of mythology, but in the beginning of 1900, Marylanders started to report sightings of a shape-shifting, mammoth-winged creature near South Mountain. Suddenly, journalists gave the creature attention, and several newspapers wrote about the Snallygaster. One of them was Maryland's Valley Register. Reports of Snallygaster sightings started pouring in from various places such as Ohio, Washington, West Virginia, and New Jersey. Local newspapers ran stories drawn from the Snallygaster mythos well into the early 1950s. Though the description of the winged creature varied, everyone was convinced that they had actually spotted the evil Snallygaster. The creature became so famous that even President Theodore Roosevelt and the Smithsonian Institution expressed interest in these sightings. Scientists started looking for traces left behind by the Snallygaster. Various scientific theories about the mysterious creature were presented. Was the creature real? Where was it hiding? Why had only some people seen it? Whether the Snallygaster really existed at some point in time, or was only a terrifying mythological giant bird, no one knows. However, what has been confirmed is that Snallygaster's alleged existence was used for financial gain. It was later revealed that the 1909 report of the Snallygaster was part of a hoax crafted by Middletown Valley Register reporter Ralph S. Wolfe and editor George C. Roderick in an effort to increase readership for their regional publication. Later investigations uncovered evidence that the newspaper used motifs of German folklore, including dragon-like creatures who snatched children and livestock to fabricated stories about the Snallygaster. According to folklorists, the legend of the Snallygaster falls within the realm of what folklorists call fake lore. Mythology and legends can be a work of fiction or relate happenings that are eventually confirmed by science. Sadly, in the case of the Snallygaster, Myths and legends were used to perpetrate a hoax, fool innocent people. 
just to earn money. What does something called a Snallygaster have to do with Ted Bundy? It's not just the Snallygaster definition. It's also the story of how the Snallygaster story gets to people. In the day and age we live in, serial killers use the deaths of their victims as a currency the closer they get to their sentence. In Bundy's case, he didn't confess until almost the eve of his execution. And even then, he didn't confess to the three types of victims that he said he would never talk about their murder. The murderer Ted Bundy has become a myth and a legend as much as he was a very, very real killer. In 2007, it came to light that Ted Bundy was likely responsible for the disappearance of Anne-Marie Burr. He said your first crime is very special and you don't talk about it and you keep it close to you. I'm Rebecca Morris. I'm a true crime author and I began investigating the Henry Burr and Ted Bundy link and her disappearance in 2007. the beginning of Labor Day weekend. She and a sister had slept upstairs in the house. Two other children slept down in the basement in their fort for the last time. She would have started a third grade uh, the next week. It stormed on the night before she disappeared so that if, if there was anyone to hear uh, that was lurking around the house or outside, uh, they wouldn't have been heard. But it was literally a dark and stormy night. Her mother, Beverly Burr, got up early on the morning of the Friday to check on the kids. It was about 5.15 in the morning, and she saw the two kids downstairs still sleeping, but she went upstairs and Anne was missing from her bed. It very quickly became a huge police presence and a, and a big investigation. It was difficult because there was, there was never any report of a strange car in the area. There was a living room window that had been opened and outside a garden bench had been pulled up to the window so it looked like somebody had crawled in the living room window. There was a shoe print on that garden bench that was pulled up outside the window that somebody had gone into and the shoe print on that bench was about the size of a teenager's uh, foot. There was no struggle, there was nothing in the house that indicated a struggle of any kind. They had latched the door and left and I think it had to be somebody she knew. Anne's father and his brother went walking around the neighborhood obviously searching for her and by then there were a lot of police around. Um, one of the complications for the search was that their home was very close to the University of Puget Sound campus, and there were seven buildings under construction that day on the University of Puget Sound campus. So there were all these construction sites and there were all these ditches. And Don Burr and his father went back to the house and told the police, you've got to go up there and look at those construction sites because there are all these ditches. And in fact, he and his brother had seen a teenager standing at one of the ditches and kind of kicking the dirt in with his feet. They waited a few days, and by the time the police went to the campus, everything was paved over. This interview with Rebecca Morris, true crime author, is important for a number of reasons. But one of the things that struck me was when she mentioned that Bundy, as a teenager, might have put Anne-Marie Burr into an already dug concrete ditch because that comes up and is important for a variety of reasons, including what will be in the final episode of where the bodies are buried. And this is one of the uh, clues we have to, uh, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later when, when Ted Bundy was hypothetically confessing to this crime. He said he stood at a ditch and then later walked over to the Burr house and watched the police presence and watched the people searching. 
1961, uh, Tacoma police didn't really know who Ted Bundy was. He wasn't on their radar. As a teenager, he did get into some trouble uh, in Tacoma um, as far as uh, peeping Tom stuff and some uh, thievery and, and shoplifting. Uh, but it wasn't until 1987 when he was in Florida and on death row uh, that he hypothetically confessed and told this story to people, uh, to some journalists and also to a serial killer researcher. Uh, he told the story about uh, this early crime of taking a child out of her house, taking her to the orchard next door and uh, molesting her and then uh, leaving her in a ditch. This is the first time that anybody ever connected the possibility of Ted Bundy to this crime because after all, he'd only been uh, 14 years old at the time. Ted was a paper boy in the neighborhood. He wasn't the Burr's paper boy, but he was a paper boy. In James Rinner's book, True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray, in chapter 10, Hacking the Universe. He says, there's this theory that our universe is nothing but a computer simulation. The idea is that we all exist inside a mostly pointless video game programmed by some higher life form. You might be surprised to learn that this is a very old idea. In his meditations on first philosophy in 1641, Rene Descartes proposed that the observable world might be a great trick orchestrated by an evil demon. And Descartes' argument was inspired by Plato's allegory of the cave, written nearly 2,500 years ago. Today, the notion of a giant computer simulation is very much in vogue in the world of theoretical physics. And here's the scary part. It looks like it really might be true. Dr. Nick Bostrom, director of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, explained to the New York Times in 2007 that soon humanity will develop computers that are fast enough and big enough to run a simulation of the entire history of the universe, a copy of our own reality. They'll use it to study the cosmos from the Big Bang to the heat death of everything. Eventually there will be thousands, millions of these simulated versions of reality. Still with me, Renner says? Good. Because here's where it gets weird. Supposing all this is possible, and tech geeks promise the computing power will be available by the middle of this century, then we would be stupid to assume that the reality in which you live is the original world that spawned the first simulations. Mathematically, it is far more probable that our world, too, is nothing but one of these computer programs. Speaking of mathematical things, let's talk about the statistics of Ted Bundy and Samantha Koenig's killer. For just a moment. According to a 1960 census of Tacoma, Washington, there were 147,979 people in the local population. The male population was around 50.3% that year. The median age for males was 29. The median age for females was 30. In the entire state of Washington, there would have been less than 300,000 males under the age of 15. The U.S. population that year would have been around 183 million people. There are no reliable numbers for the number of serial killers operating in the United States in the 1960s. Ted Bundy, one of the world's most notorious serial killers, is being linked to a decades-old cold case. Anne-Marie Burr vanished in 1961, but could she be Ted Bundy's first victim? Anne-Marie Burr was a young, radiant girl living in Tacoma, Washington. Anne-Marie Burr managed to capture the love and admiration of family, friends, even strangers she never met. At just eight years old, she vanished from her home. I never found anything, not a thing, not a trail, not a speck of anything. Sandy Holt grew up in Tacoma and knew Anne-Marie, as well as Ted Bundy. He always lied. I mean, always. Bundy one of the most notorious serial killers and rapists lived just blocks from Anne at the time of her disappearance. He was 14 and had played with Anne as a kid. Horrible. There's no other way to explain him. He didn't fit in anywhere. Could Anne-Marie Burr be Ted Bundy's first victim? Police say evidence collected at Anne's house here so many years ago is limited because of methods investigators used back then. But King 5 News has learned that recently police have sent some of that evidence to the lab to be tested, hoping new technology can finally help solve this case. Ted Bundy was executed at 416 Seattle time. Bundy was executed in 1989. He eventually confessed to at least 30 victims. I just knew that he was the one that got rid of her somewhere. Although he's now dead, 25 years later, a crack at new technology 
could bring closure to the Burr family. We are joined by anchor and reporter Greg Copeland from our sister station, King 5 News in Seattle. So Greg, you and producer Tess Wagner investigated this and we want to know what prompted Tacoma police to reopen Ann's case and how long will this testing take? We don't know at this point and think about it was a cold case. So basically they, they shelved these cases that they can't solve and usually they will come back to them when they either have some new evidence or a new way to test that evidence. But at this point, Tacoma police are being fairly tight-lipped about exactly what led to them retesting this evidence. And Ann's mom wrote Ted in jail asking if he killed her daughter. He denied it, and you had a chance to look at those letters. Was there anything else that he wrote that you found shocking? Boy, those letters, in both of them, they're fascinating to go through because we know so much about Bunny, but there's so much we don't know. And the way he even signed his letters, you know, peace, Ted, wow. was eerie enough. The last letter that I was reading was one that she had written in 86, right after pretty much he had exhausted uh, every effort to his stay of executions and they had moved it up and she had written him in between those two basically pleading like listen we, we know what you told investigators uh, please and she wrote in detail about that night her daughter disappeared and how he might have gotten in there based on a story he had told a serial killer researcher and she basically threw that right back at him and saying please you gave up all these details you're going to be executed please before you are let us know and and as we know he really denied those all of the murders up until the very end, right before he was to be executed, admitted. 30 that we know of. Right. And there that are some questions as to whether there are more. I mean, he talked and hinted at a couple before the first known murder that he admitted to in 1974, hinted at one in 72, uh, another one in 73. But this would go back even further if, if they were to link to Burr to 1961 when he was just 14 wow. years old. Being a mother myself, I can't even imagine her just like begging to get some sort of closure from him. Um, I hope that they find the truth. I hope that they find justice. I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So thank you so much. To read more on this case, go to king5.com. Why is this guy so hung up on Ted Bundy? What is it that makes me so different from these guys? After all, I'm on a podcast decades later talking about these killers. One of the things that bothered me the most was that Theodore Robert Cowell or Ted Bundy and the killer that we've been talking about might not really be that different at all. For years now, my house has been covered in maps and lists. Related to Samantha Koenig's killer, I've researched 8,000 separate cases. I narrowed that down to around 381 probables or possibles, depending on how you look at it. And then I narrowed that list down to 85 people. Most of those people aren't even thought to have been the victim of a crime at all, but a few of them were. And I've been trying to come up with a good list to compare Theodore Robert Cowell and this killer. On one of my lists, it says they're both tied to Vermont. They're both obsessed with possessing their victims. Bundy revisited his crime scenes, but this killer stayed away. Misogynistic victim choices versus indiscriminate ones. Both were highly involved in sexual and murderous fantasies. Both blamed pornography to a degree. One was executed, the other committed suicide. Both had highly organized methodology and used randomness to their advantage. Both evolved in huge ways in their 20s. They both raped and strangled. They both abused alcohol. Bundy embraces his type for youth and beauty. The other killer eventually succumbs to his own types, but learned to fantasize and kill based on randomness for much longer. Bundy wanted to live, but the other killer wanted to keep his secrets after learning from Bundy and his time in the system that would prolong the idea that he was a monster. But neither one of them had any concept of truth or being honest. It wasn't that they were liars. It's that they couldn't remotely understand the difference from an outsider's perspective. They were both absolutely consumed with murder. It's the primary priority around which they took great care to base the entirety of the rest of their lives. I even think that this killer paid tribute to Bundy with one of his early victims. Because of Bundy, this killer was a better abductor and murderer. He used what he learned of other killers and read about them and their crimes, their captures, and their time in the judicial system to up his own game. I keep making these lists. But what I really needed was a case that was similar to Anne-Marie Burr. And I didn't find one. I found two. But before I play those, I want to play something different for you. I want to play something else these two killers had in common. And I'm going to play the most recent one first. 
You may want to adjust your volume for this next piece. Uh, filed shortly after the court issued the order in this matter setting today's hearing. Our position is that at this particular juncture, we're not <laughs> On May 23, 2012, while in custody, Samantha Koenig's killer made a run for it, and he did it in the middle of a public courtroom. The sound you just heard was the reaction to him removing his manacles and leaping over the rail. This is one more thing our killer has in common with Bundy, although no one tased Bundy. On June 7, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for preliminary hearings. He had elected to serve as his own attorney, and as such, he was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground for the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts. Then he hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued southward toward the town of Crested Butte, but he became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen. He took food and a ski parka, but instead of continuing southward, he walked back north towards Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course, cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, he drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Karen Campbell's body. As his own attorney, Bundy had rights of discovery. This indicated that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but had been planned. Bundy jumped out of this second-story window at the front of the Pitkin County Courthouse this morning. He was scheduled for a court appearance and apparently had been locked into the law library by sheriff's deputies while attorneys were arguing a motion to strike the death penalty. Witnesses say he left in a hurry. However, nobody saw him open the window, and he escaped clean in an unknown direction. At both ends of town, the sheriff's department put up roadblocks and searched each vehicle leaving the town of Aspen. As of late this afternoon, Bundy was still missing, but a court clerk said they'd arrested nine people on warrants and confiscated 200 pounds of marijuana. All day long, County Sheriff Dick Keenest has been circling over the wooded hills in a helicopter looking for the suspected rapist killer, but with no success. Ted Bundy, a Washington state resident, was convicted last year of the kidnap assault of a young woman from Salt Lake City. He's also the prime suspect in a series of murders of young women in Washington state, as well as the suspect in a murder case here in Aspen. This is Ward Lucas reporting from Aspen. And then Bundy tried it again. Back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against them, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor, and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal. Beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors. Had Ted persevered, he could have been a free man. Instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan 
front of the jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates, and accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in over a six-month period, he later said, by visitors, Carol Ann Boone in particular. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole about one foot square between the steel reinforcement bars in his cell ceiling, and having lost 35 pounds, was able to wriggle through it into the crawl space above. In the weeks that followed, he made a series of several practice runs, exploring the space. Multiple reports from an informant of movement within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become a circus in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files into his bed. He covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife. He changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet and walked out the front door to freedom. After stealing a car... Bundy drove eastward out of Colorado Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride into Vail, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. In Glenwood Springs, the jail skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. As any respectable nerd knows... To continue to quote James Renner, there are codes that will let you cheat the video game. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start, will get you unlimited free lives in the original version of Contra. I was looking for a way to cheat where this killer had hidden his bodies, and I was wondering if I could use Ted Bundy and all that we know about Bundy to do just that. This killer has been linked to several crimes in 1996 and 1997 that are disappearances of young girls. He's never definitively been proven to have been involved in. In the book American Predator, Maureen Callahan writes about Julie Harris. Julie Harris went missing in 1996. She was 12 years old, 5 foot 1, and 115 pounds, a double amputee who wore prosthetic feet. She had won a gold medal in downhill skiing at the Special Olympics and was the most famous person in Colville, Washington. Julie left home early on the morning of March 3rd. She was wearing a black skirt and sweater with pink and black stripes. She left behind the stuffed puppy she otherwise carried everywhere. She was never seen again. Initial suspicion fell on her mother's live-in boyfriend, who had admitted to yelling at Julie the night before to finish her homework. But her mother insisted he was innocent, and he was never charged in connection with her disappearance. Police later reported that Julie had last been seen with a man in a trench coat. One month later... Julie's prosthetic feet were found by the banks of the Colville River. In 1997, the rest of her remains were discovered three miles from Colville by children playing in the woods. Investigators were also curious about another little girl who'd gone missing in Colville in late June 1997. Like Julie, Cassie Emerson had been 12 years old when she vanished. She had lived with her mom, Marlene, in a trailer, and she was reported missing after their trailer was destroyed by arson. Her mother's body was found inside. As with Julie, police had no leads and very few suspects. Cassie's remains decomposed and ravaged by animals were found the following April in the woods near Kettle Falls, a 13-minute drive from Colville. Police believe the same person killed Cassie and her mother. Neither case has ever been solved. Our killer left for Mopin, Oregon in 1997, and the kidnapping and murders of little girls in Colville ceased. The timeline is mushy for much of the late 90s, but our killer had reported that he'd attacked a girl along the Deschutes River in a remote bathroom. The population of Colville, Washington in 1996 was 5,057 people. The Kettle Falls population was 1,586 people. It wasn't that I wanted to link this killer to those girls or not. It's just that I needed a starting point to tell you the rest of the story. Then, among the 30-plus hours of interviews I'd been listening to, he said this. I start breaking into houses when I was 13 or 14. As soon as I got into guns, basically, I started breaking into houses. And I was into fire quite a while before that, so that was just like side benefit. How old were you when you first burned something down? Well, depends what you count. I guess. I, no, the first thing I burned down was a trailer. So I was about the same age, like 14, 15. But, I mean, I had, you know, 
know, pyromaniac for your No, something you weren't supposed to burn down. You know, like besides my eyebrows? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I no, I was I started a forest fire once by accident. That was by accident, but it was kind of one of those things. I wasn't that sorry that I'd done it after it happened because it was pretty impressive. We're you don't, don't want to get the forest guys involved in this; they'll be all over it. Where is that? A bill for that? Oh, they caught you. And my dad. They tried to get a bill. No, it's that. I mean, out where I was. Fires were nothing. It's like I start fires, you know, pretty much every time I go out to camp. Next, generally, I wouldn't start the whole forest on fire. That was never my intention. I'm kind of outdoorsy person, so I actually enjoy the forest. But I would, you know, if I found like old buildings and stuff that I thought I could get away with burning without anyone worrying too much about it, I didn't. That's almost like a public service. Doing them a favor. Right. So that, that's something you've done. Did you ever use a fire to cover up a crime or something afterwards? Well, yeah. That's like Alito. Burglar. Oh, yeah. Well, that, was, that house just needed to be burned. What was it that needed to be burned? Perhaps burn houses up with bodies in them? In March of 2012, he robbed a bank and then burned a house down while in Texas. But that's not what's worrying him here. Yeah. No, I don't want to. And just like that, he was no longer interested in talking. He'd given away too much already. Maybe he'd broken one of the same rules that Bundy had in place. Maybe it was a victim he was thinking of that was too close to family, too close to home, or who was very young. Have you ever listened to the interviews of Ted Bundy on death row? They're very interesting, and they sound a lot like this killer. But with the false wisdom that would come from having been incarcerated for quite some time. People say, Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in there. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Uh, there's no right, right way for me to act. Sure, I'm mad. I'm showing emotion right now because inside I'm mad. But I've kept it together because there's no point in destroying myself. I have got to keep myself together. I have got to stay calm. I've got to keep my presence of mind because as long as I do that, I'm going to beat these people free. Are you angry? Sure, I get angry. Uh, very, very angry and indignant. Uh, I don't like being locked up for something I didn't do, and I don't like my liberty taken away, and I don't like being treated like an animal, and I don't like, like people walking around and ogling me like I'm some sort of weirdo, because I'm not. I've matured in the past year. Believe me, I've grown in the past year, and I've learned a lot of things about myself in the past year. My only misgivings is that I might never be, might never be in a position to apply it you know, on the streets where I'd like to apply it. Have you ever physically harmed anyone? Ever physically harmed anyone? No. No. You know, uh, again, not in the context, I think, that you're, you're speaking of. Do you ever think about the possibility of facing a firing squad? I think I stand about as much chance of dying in front of a firing squad or in a gas chamber as you do being killed in a plane flight home. Let's hope you don't. <laughs> but so you don't lie awake at night thinking about it? Not a moment. Honest to God, not a moment. Because it's not going to happen. You are not guilty. I'm not guilty. <laughs> does, that, does that include the time I stole a comic book when I was five years old? <laughs> I am not guilty of the charges which have been filed against me. And the allegations? And the allegations? And the rumors and the... <laughs>
I don't know all of what you're speaking about, Lucky. It's too broad and I can't get into it in any detail. Uh, but I'm satisfied with, with my blanket statement that I'm innocent. Uh, no man is truly innocent. Uh, I mean, we all have transgressed in some way in our lives. And as I say, I, I've been uh, impolite and uh, there are things I regret having done in my life. Uh, but nothing like the, the things I think that you're referring to. I've been told that, uh, you know, the parents of these, of these girls are, are fairly decent people. I don't know. I really feel for them because apparently they've suffered some uh, an incredible tragedy in their lives. The loss of a loved one is is probably probably the most extreme kind of loss you can suffer in, in this life. And I say I, I feel as much for them as anybody can. You think about getting out of here? Well, well, uh, legally, sure. Uh, one of the the final murders that you committed, of course, uh, was apparently little Kimberly Leach, 12 years of age. Uh, I think the, the public outcry is greater there because an innocent child was taken from a, from a playground. What did you feel after that? What was there, were there the normal emotions three days later? Where were you, Ted? I... I can't really talk about that right now. That's the way It's too painful. I would like to, uh, I'd like to be able to convey to you what that, that, uh, that experience is like, but I can't, that I won't okay. be able to talk about that. Okay. Where and where were your first murder? You know what's going to happen if and when all this stuff goes public, if all we did was just hit the who's and the when and the body count? Testing one, two, three, four, five, six. Make no bones about it. I am looking for an opportunity to tell the story as best I can in a way that makes sense to me and the way it'll help not just you or the families, but that's very important, but also to help my own family. I don't think anybody doubts that I've done some bad things. The question is what, of course, and, and how, and, and maybe even most importantly, why. To me, the why never caught anybody. So cops in their mentality think that what, where, when, who. And so we're kind of stuck with you wanting why. I'm not trying to convince you, Bob, that you should be interested in the why if you're not. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who are. I know I am, uh, and I think a lot of people are interested in why. People constantly will ask me why. Let me start this way. The unidentified remains. This is where I'm a little bit, uh, the presence of the officers down here is a little bit unnerving. Some of the stuff I don't mind talking about because they wouldn't know from Adam. I can write it down. I just don't want the police getting any kind of names at this point. Yeah, and then I'll just write the name down for you, all right? The name that I just wrote down was George Ann Hawkins. Can you hear that? I can hear you. Okay. I just wrote, I just said that the Hawkins girl's head was severed and taken up the road about 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. Did you hear that? Probably you found uh, damage to the head, the jaw in particular, probably broken. But uh, if you'd found that, you would have known who it was. Up to that dirt road, beyond the grassy area. I'll try to trace it here on a piece of paper. How about that? That might help a little. I'm working from some pretty old memories. Well, let's do it this way. Here's the grassy area. Here's the road coming up, trees to the northwest of this grassy area. I can't remember what night of the week it was. Thursday night, I believe, I don't know. 11 to 12, probably closer to 12, on a warm Seattle May night. I mean, it was, I think it was clear. Weather had been fairly good. Uh, I was moving up the alley, using a, uh, a briefcase and some crutches, 
and a young woman walked down. I saw her round the north end of the block into the alley and stop for a moment and then keep on walking down the alley toward me. And about halfway down the block, I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase, which she did, and we walked back up the alley. Across the street, turned right on the sidewalk in front of, I think, the fraternity house on the corner there. Midway in the block used to be a parking lot there, dirt, surface, no lights, and my car was parked there. That's Bob Keppel saying stop the tape. It's a weird art to go from listening to a killer deny their crimes to to hearing them admit to them in pieces. If I was going to think like this killer, there were going to be no cheats. But I had to use Ted Bundy as a walkthrough to get inside his head. Julie Harris, Cassie Emerson, and Marlene Emerson were found. Next week, I'll tell you about the first victim I think that hasn't been recognized, identified, and her remains have never been found. But her middle name is Anne. Thanks for listening today. This podcast was made possible by LabratiCreations.com. Check out the merchandise and specifically their fun pop pet art custom pieces made from photos of your very own pets. Use the promo code CRIMEXS, that's C-R-I-M-E-X-S, for 20% off a fun, brightly colored, happy piece of art of your own pet at their site, L-A-B-R-O-T-T-I-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com. That's labratticreations.com. Music in this episode was licensed for True Crime Excess. Our theme song today is Indestructible by Noah Smith from Avatar with the song Kamikaze. You can reach us at our website, truecrimexcess.com, and you can leave us a voice message at 252-365-5593. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can come over to patreon.com and check out what we've got going on there. If you'd like to donate to fund future True Crime Excess road trip investigations and FOIA requests. We'd also like to thank Anchor and Spotify for having the coolest all-in-one podcast platforms available. Definitely download the Anchor app or go to Anchor. Dot .fm to start your own show today. This is True Crime XS. So just an additional show note, we're still working out the scheduling. What we're hoping to do is release new episodes on Friday, and we will have some tangent episodes that are not about the main narrative killer's case that we'll be releasing on Mondays and on weeks when we need to take a break. But right now it's looking like 22 episodes, so the first two have already released, and this will carry us through the first part of July. And then we will be at True Crime Podcast Festival in July in Kansas City, Missouri. So you can come out there and say hi if you'd like to. We'd love to meet you and we'll be putting more information about that up on our website and in future show notes so you can check that out. And we'll probably just have more information directly in the episodes.